Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. I'm still standing up right. That's good. Um, and as I said to our visitors last week, I know you're not impressed by that, um, but, but it, if you knew my back situation, you would understand. That's a big deal. So Christmas came early, I guess. Um, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. We're going to start in Isaiah chapter 5 uh, first this morning. And let me uh, just, as you turn there, let me just say that, um, join in with, with Joe and what he said about uh, Arthur David. He just did really a beautiful, wonderful job. He's like, a, he's like an old friend who just comes back every so often and it's so good to see him. And then he speaks and it's like, you know, you have so much respect for him and what he and his wife both have done. Uh, and we appreciate so very much. Uh, so we're glad that you're here, both of you. Uh, how many of you are familiar with Edgar Allan Poe? Anybody? Okay, he's a little creepy. <laughs> uh, and it's not just a picture. He is, uh, he is a poet. He, he was also known for his short stories. And what he was really known for is, is these stories about death and horror. And he even had some, like, love poetry that was centered around the death of like a beautiful woman such as the raven or um, uh, what was it Annabelle Lee was the other one that he did and so you know he kind of had this mix of things I'm not much into these dark romanticism kind of things uh, but Edgar Allan Poe's a very interesting person and what we sometimes forget as Christians is that one-third of the Old Testament is poetry. And if you want to learn more about poetry, I put up there at the top of this, thebibleproject.com, you can find this, this particular video there, The Art of Biblical Poetry. Because as I said, one-third of the Old Testament is poetry. And so to understand why that is and why they use these play on words and, and how they, you know, uh, all these contrasts and things of that sort, you begin to see that it is to take something that is being said and to drive it home to have a greater meaning. And the poet sometimes could be like, you know, our guy. Uh, you know, Edgar Allan Poe. In that they could take something that is like seems to be a love song or a love poetry. And then suddenly it just turns into judgment. <laughs> you know, uh, and that's what we find here in Isaiah. So I want us to begin by just looking at verse 1. He says, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. I know some of you are melting right now. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. And you read that and it's like, wow, this is going to be good, you know. But it's deceitful. Because listen to the rest of it. He dug it, speaking about the vineyard, and he cleared it of all its stones and planted it with choice vines. In other words, he gave his love everything. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O oh, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do? for my vineyard that I have not done in it. When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? 
And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled on. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Ooh, it's just getting worse, isn't it? For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting, and he looked for justice, and behold, bloodshed. And he looked for righteousness, and behold, distress. Hmm. The poem is actually a parable. And the parable has to do with God's people. God's people are this vineyard. And, and he is the one that God has taken out of Egypt, out of their time of oppression, when they had nothing at all. And he comes and he plants them. And this is what we find in Scripture. They are planted in the promised land. And God gives them everything they need. They are given God's law so that they can be shaped by God's righteousness. And by his, his justice. And they were to be a light to the nations. So that, so that the nations could look upon them and, and their communities. And they can see how human communities can thrive and grow the best. By living the, the, by, the, by the way that the owner of the vineyard wants them to live. And he gives them everything that they need. But when the owner of the vineyard finally comes and he looks for fruit... It says all he finds is wild grapes. And that word wild means sour, stinky, rotten in the Hebrew. I don't know what it means in English, Joe. But that's what it means in, in, in Hebrew, right? So he comes looking for grapes. And what does he find? He finds grapes, but they're, they're not any good. They're rotten. They're stinky. And so he comes looking for fruit, the fruit of justice, but he finds bloodshed. He looks for the fruit of righteousness, but all he finds is this outcry of distress. And what we find here is really interesting because it's Hebrew poetry at its best. He looked for justice, mishpat, but instead he found bloodshed, mishpah. He looked for righteousness, se'akah. But it, what he found was this outcry, Sedekah. It's, it's, it's beautiful language when you really get into this. And we look at this and we say, well, why don't they just say and just save us some paper here, right? Why don't the prophets just say, look, you people, you need to repent. Because the message that they're giving is very difficult. And so the prophet Isaiah, he takes everything in his arsenal. He takes the poetry, word plays, and even a parable in trying to get them to understand these hard-headed, hard-hearted people that they need to repent. That God has given them all things and yet all they produce is things that are rotten. You see that? And, and when you see the poetry, I don't know if you caught this or not, but they're just one letter away. You see this? He's looking for Mishpat. Mishpat, instead he finds Mishpah, just one letter. He looks for Se'akah, 
righteousness, but they're, but they're at tzedakah. They're just one letter away from being righteous and, ju- and having justice. You see, it's beautiful. It's really beautiful. Now we're ready for the gospel of Mark. Just go to Mark. Last week, Jesus comes to the temple. Remember this? It's day two. Jesus comes to the temple, and he it just messes up the place. And he pronounces a judgment on the temple. He, um, you know, has some harsh things to say, quoting some of this, this prophecy and things of that sort. And so he's back. This is where we are today. He comes back. It's day three that Jesus comes to Jerusalem. And these religious leaders that he spoke against, and they got it because they want to kill him, they're going to confront this Jesus. And so beginning in verse 27, this is uh, chapter 11, verse 27, it says, And they came again to Jerusalem, and as they were walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? In other words, what they're saying is, who do you think you are? Right? Who do you think you are to come into God's house and mess it up and pronounce a judgment on it? So Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Listen, Jesus is so brilliant. He says, what was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. Let me stop here because we're not going to do any much in here. I was going to do more of that in a class situation. But here what he's saying is he's pointing to, to Jesus's, um, to his anointing, the anointing of God in the spirit at his baptism. Okay, this is what he, so, so he's asking them about this baptism of John. And so in verse 31, they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe me? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. That's political, isn't it? And Jesus said to them, well, neither will I tell you what authority I do these things. That's brilliant. Just brilliant. So what I really want us to get to and and just kind of stay with this morning is this parable that comes right off of this. He's still speaking to these religious leaders. The Sanhedrin is what they were known as. And he's still speaking to these members of the Sanhedrin and he tells this parable. Chapter 12, verse 1. And let me say this. As we read this, keep Isaiah 5 in the back of your mind. There was a purpose as to why we read that. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. All right, do you get it? Are you starting to see it? These connections that are being made. We'll come back to that. Verse 2 When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed, 
he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. All right, let's stop there. So you see these correlations between the two. Why is that so important? Because Jesus continues as a prophet. Remember, last week he comes as a prophet. And now here he is again, and he's coming as a prophet, like Isaiah. But he, he, even though we see these similarities, Jesus is his own poet, right? Jesus, is, he does his own parables. And instead of this being about, you know, rotten grapes in a vineyard, he's talking about the rotten farmers who were to care for the vineyard. There's, there is the difference. Now, there is something that is found in both, and that is when you do a parable, you need to know who these people are. The vineyard represents Israel, and the landowner represents God. But let's talk about these tenant farmers for just a moment. Because this, was, this had become like a thing in Palestine back in the first century. And it's because the people were not honoring the laws that God had set up for the land. And, and these wealthy landowners were coming in and they were buying up their lands. And many of them were not Jewish and they didn't even live in their ancestral lands. And so they would buy these things up and go back to their places, where it be Rome or Caesarea or wherever it be those places. And then what happened is the people who had owned those lands, they now are working as farmers on their own lands. And so that's kind of how, and it was a very touchy subject, as you can imagine. So here in this situation, we see it's harvest time. And at harvest time, the tenant farmer is supposed to give his percentage of the harvest to the landowner. Makes sense, right? So he sends a servant to, to go collect rent, if you will. And what happens? He doesn't give him any of it. And then what does he do? They, they beat him and send him away. So the owner, what does he do? He sends another servant. And this servant is is hit over the head. And this may even be like an allusion to John the baptizer here. I'm not sure. But he's beaten too. And so the serv I mean the, the owner sends another servant. And what happens to him? He's killed. Now, now blood has been shed. And now we're going from, you know, like a something that was going on in day-to-day -day life back in Palestine to to this has gotten very intense. This is not kind of the normal thing. So it's like, okay, now what is he going to do next? And so he sends more servants, many more servants. Isn't that what the text says? And each one would be sent, and some of them would be beaten, and others of them were being murdered. And it's like, at this point, you're just like, why didn't he just send all of them at once armed? You know what I mean? I mean, after the first death, surely there's something better can be done here. But instead, even after all of this, 
he, he thinks, okay, well, if I send my cherished son, he has more authority than all of the servants combined. He represents me in every way. He is of my blood. And if they, if somehow he can go, I believe they'll do what they need to do. But that's not the way the tenant farmer saw it. They saw it as, hey, this is the heir to this place. And if we kill him, this was their thinking, if we kill him, then we get to keep the vineyard for ourselves. And so they murdered the son. And they threw him out of the vineyard. How does this come about? You know, you make this contract, and that's what would have been done in this situation. Okay, you work the land as the farmers, and the, the owner is going to get his percentage, but also those who work the land, they're also going to be given uh, things of what they need as well. And it's like, how do you go from that to say, you know what, I'm not going to give you any of it. And then to say to the owner, or, or to do to the owner, you start beating and killing his servant, and then you come to the point that you actually kill his beloved son. And the only way to explain that is they began to see that the vineyard, they believed it was theirs. They believed that they were entitled to it. And yet nothing that they had was theirs. The houses they lived on the farm was not there. The tools that they would have used on the farm, it would not have been theirs. But they believed it's ours. Now at this point, Jesus turns to the religious leaders and he says, so what do you think the owner of the vineyard should do? Remember the story, the Old Testament story of King David and he, he commits these just awful, heinous crimes. And he sends the prophet Nathan. Remember this? He sends a prophet. Okay, get this in mind. He sends a prophet. And what does he do? He tells a parable. Because this is a very serious message. And Nathan could lose his own head in all of this. And he, so he tells about this poor man who has this ewe lamb. And it's not a farm animal. It, it's, it's like a pet. It's like something he cherishes and cares for. But there's this rich man. And he's got a whole flock of ewe lambs. But he comes down and he just takes this poor man's lamb. And he has it killed and they eat it for supper with a guest that he has. And King David hears this and he's just angry. And you, you remember, the prophet turns to David and he says, say it with me, you are, oh come on, y'all know this, you are the man, right? Jesus comes as a prophet of God and he is trying to light the, the leaders of Israel on fire with this parable. He wants them to see who they really are. And the tenant farmers, if we keep going with this, they are the religious leaders. And the servants that we've been talking about, those are the prophets. If you read about the prophets, these are the ones who were abused. Some of them were killed because they bring this message to the people to try to get them to repent, and this is the way they were treated. John the baptizer, he's already been beheaded. And, 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 but this goes even further back. And who's the beloved son? Jesus. Yeah, yeah, see? You see it. Okay, so let's keep going. So Jesus sets all of this up. And so now, 
in verses 10 and 11, Jesus says, have you not read this scripture? And I love that when he says that because what he's saying is, haven't you read your Bibles? He's telling these scholars these things. So he quotes this passage from the Old Testament. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus quotes from the Hillel. This is not the first time we've talked about the Hillel. When he comes into Jerusalem, they're, they're quoting part of the Hillel from Psalm 118. It's a, it's a psalm of thanksgiving and praise. And this is what was quoted during the time of Passover, which is just a few days away, by the way. And he quotes this passage about this stone in Solomon's temple that had been rejected. Because when they built the temple, it had to be, I mean, it had to be down to the details. And if it wasn't the right size, if there was a crack in it, if there was anything that they felt was an imperfection, they rejected that stone. It couldn't be in it. But there was one of those stones that was rejected, and it turns out it became the head of the porch. It became the cornerstone, the most important stone in the whole building. This is, this is good stuff. All right, buckle up. So what, what has this story been about? Before he quotes this, it's been about a son, right? So in Hebrew, the son that is rejected, the Hebrew word is ben. And now he's talking about a stone that has been rejected. It is the Hebrew word eben. You see this? This is brilliant stuff, folks. Both of these, the sun and the stone, have these crazy reversals where both of them had been rejected. But both of them ended up being the most important. Jesus has come as a prophet to call the religious leaders into account. The kingdom of God is under a new leadership. And God is going to build a new building, a new temple. And he's going to use a stone, an eben, that has been rejected. And, and, and it's not a stone or a building that has been made with hands, but has been made with the bin, with the beloved son. You see that? This is, this is genius. Jesus is talking about himself. In the early church, it's exactly what they saw as well. Ephesians chapter 2. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. And he's talking about non-Jews, what is called Gentiles. Non-Jews in this situation. And he says, you're no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on, listen to this, here's this structure of God's house. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and what? Jesus Christ himself who is the cornerstone he is the most important of all of this and the broader scope of what's happening here in ephesians chapter 2 is this this broader uh, issue of god's salvation he's reaching out beyond the jews and he's reaching out to non-jews and where there had been a barrier that has been destroyed by jesus does that sound familiar to anything we talked about last week and what Jesus comes to the temple and what he sees in these barriers that have been placed between the court of the Gentiles and the rest of Israel. 
And he says these borders have been torn down by Jesus Christ himself. And now the Spirit comes and he makes us into a family. One family, Jews and non-Jews alike, by the Spirit of God. We become the temple of God, of the Spirit that now comes and dwells in us. Man, this powerful stuff. So Jesus rides into Jerusalem. He is the long-awaited king of Israel. And the first order of business is to deal with the religious leaders. He isn't rejecting Israel in order to gain favor for the Gen- a Gentile Christian church. Some people read this passage this way. That's just wrong. Number one, it, it, it's completely not what the text is saying. And secondly, it's not what the whole Bible teaches from, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. This is about their leaders. Israel was always meant to be a family that embraces, that reaches out to the nations. They had failed. But to separate ourselves from our Jewish heritage, it is to literally and metaphorically to cut the branch off that we're sitting on. Read Romans chapter 11. You'll see it there. Isaiah's parable ended in the judgment of the vineyard. Our text ends with the judgment of the tenants. It's the religious leaders who are being rejected. Well, do they get it? Verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Hmm. So they left him and they went away. So Jesus tells this parable, and all of a sudden they say, wait a second, I think he's talking about us. Yes, you're the man. You're the men who have created this problem. And they had an opportunity to be brought into God's salvation, into God's temple, and what do they do when the father, the owner of the vineyard, sends his son, they reject him. And they're about... To murder him. Yet the father reverses the evil. This whole thing's about reversal. And the reversal is, even though you killed the son, it is the son who rises up. He, the one who's rejected, who will raise from the grave. And you look back at verse 9, and, and we see something interesting. When the owner of the vineyard comes and he destroys these evil tenants... Then what happens? He gives the vineyard to others. Who are these others? Those who produce fruit. That's what Isaiah is about. That's what Jesus' parable is about. It's about fruit. Arthur David alluded to something, you know, in Bible class, really about this very, very thing. It's about fruit. God wants those in his vineyard who will produce fruit. Those of you who are going to serve on the Lord's Supper, you can go on back at this point. We're getting ready to take, the, take communion. You know, when we eat the bread and the cup, as we're about to do, we are, we're actually eating this parable. Think about that. We should be disturbed, and we're meant to be disturbed by the owner The owner, he just keeps sending these servants, and they're abused, 
and they're killed. And we would say after the first abuse, some of us would say, okay, that's it. But then after the first murder, we would definitely say, it's time for vengeance. But he just keeps sending these servants. And many more will be abused and many more will be killed. And we're supposed to see something about the father in all of this. And that is the father continuously pursues us. No matter how often his love is met with rejection. The owner's optimism in sending his son, it represents God's endless hopefulness and effort to bring sinful humanity to their senses. You see this. How about another Isaiah prophecy? And before I put this up, let me say this. A lot of times we think, well, when we come to the New Testament, we see finally a God who loves. A God who really has a lot of patience with us and everything else. Hey, listen, you're not, you're not paying attention to the Old Testament. What you're paying attention to is things that you've read from others who are opposed to it. <laughs> because that's not what we read. Here, prophet, here Isaiah says, I spread out, this is talking about God, Yahweh, I spread out my hands all the day. You hear that? It's, it's, you see, I spread out my hands. It's a loving gesture. It's, it's an invitation. It's a welcome. It's, it's a pleading. And who is he spreading his hands out to? Rebellious people. Who walk in a way that is not good. Who follow their own devices. A people who provoke God. And they provoke him to his face continually. And as we get ready to partake of the bread and the cup, we are reminded of how much God loves us. And some of you, you've been down that path and he has continued, he had to continue to come after you, to pursue you. Because you rejected his advances. You rejected those who tried to share his love with you. But you know what? You're here. You're here. And this is a moment for you to remember. And as we get ready to partake of this bread, I believe the Bible teaches us that Jesus comes at this moment. He joins us at the table. And just as the, the Son was sent, we have a choice of how we receive the Son who comes this day. And we can use it for selfish means because we believe, hey, this is my time and I'm going to think about lunch and I'm going to think about what I'm going to do this afternoon or all the, the shopping that I need to do for Christmas and everything else that's going on. Or we can absolutely come at this moment and we just bring our rebellious nature to the Son and we come to Him and we just allow Him to fill us up and we come in obedience and we come to Him thankful and praiseworthy for what he has done. Father, we come to you this day and we thank you for this bread, for it represents the body of your Son, the Son who is our King, the Son that we love, the Son who has risen from the dead. And this day we are so grateful and joyful for the, for the wonderful sacrifice that was made because, Father, you are a God of reversals. So, Father, as we enter this time of meditation and remembering, Father, we just pray it all comes before you and before your throne. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.